Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, man, you know what? We're still at home. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I did. Uh, I went up to wine country in uh, oh, yeah. an area called Osoyoos, which is part of the Okanagan Valley. You know, we're visiting BC. We're in phase three. So there's still masks and separation and things like that. But, uh-huh. uh stayed in a hotel, which was very bizarre. No service in the hotel. You're the only one on the elevator kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And uh, the, went to a few wineries, which was enjoyable. And again, all very socially distanced, spaced out. Only so many people at a time. The, the person serving the tastes would would come up with a mask on, pour the, pour the wine, then back away. Then we could come up and take our masks off and then... They'd explain what each wine was, and we try them. It, you know, it was some ritual, but we got it done, and it was the you know I got out of the house for four days. Nice, yeah. Hard to be too unhappy. Yeah, really. Uh, well, a little bit of drama happened here in that we had a little uh, tropical storm. Oh yeah, yeah. It did get up to you, didn't it? Yeah, and this is just a couple of days ago. We're recording this August sixth. Um, so yeah, it was a couple of days ago. Our power went in and out, you know, but we have a generator. Not too worried about that, right? Got some wind, you know, we got some stuff blowing around. No trees came down on the house, though. But the next day, the internet went down at my house. And it's been down now for like 36 hours. And uh, there's no, you know, at first they thought they could repair it quickly. Uh, You know, I'm just looking on the internet provider, you know, for their status updates. Right. You know, first it was like 11 a.m. and then it was 3 p.m. and then it was 7 p.m. and then it was like, yeah, we'll let you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm pretty sure something major Something's got broken. taken out. Man, yeah, some flooding or something like a major control center has failed and now they're like, uh, we need a bunch of parts. Now they're, yeah. So, did you have to right. go to the studio? Like, how are you, uh, how are we doing this? I am at the studio. I am lucky because I have a recording studio yes. I can go to. You have an That option. sounds pretty good. Yeah. And uh, there you are, still functional while back home, nothing. Right. And it's kind of funny that, you know, I had considered either bringing the level of internet access down at the studio or right. getting rid of it altogether because I'm never here. Right. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Worked out. Okay. Okay. Well, that's enough from us. Let's uh, get rolling with Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, man. What do you got? Well, you know, it's been a while since uh, I've actually explained what this Better Know a Framework thing is. <laughs> True. So, yeah. Uh, what does it have to do with the framework? Because I usually, you know, I've, <laughs> I've been called out, you know, this is where Carl Googles one hour before the show. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Which is sometimes true. You could have called uh, it Google today. weirdos, but I think we already used that. Yeah, yeah, that's ancient history. <laughs> but uh, it started out when in the earlier days, and I'd say earlier, not early by any means, but in the earlier days of .NET, there was a lot to learn. And so I would pick a class or a namespace or a feature of the .NET framework, this is way before core, and just, you know, let everybody know, hey, you know, this is in the framework. Nice. Yeah. And so then I sort of ran out of those. And, you know, they started to get a little bit boring and a bit obscure. Case. Obscure is the word. Like you were poking obscure. at some strange little bits of the framework. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. So, so then I just started looking around um, for cool, 
either products or news stories or things that .NET developers would probably be interested in. So here's one of those. So this is uh, fireflies.ai. Okay. I'm amazed that domain was available. but Yeah, me too. Well, this is actually falling in line with something I've been noticing in the past week, mm-hmm. just the last week, that a lot of these ideas that I started messing around with when I came home from, uh, you know, the, the tour and, you know, the coronavirus happened, they're all coming to fruition. Right. And this was one of them. I actually had... Uh, an app that did this and you remember this richard this is ai voice assistant for meetings so you can record transcribe and search across your voice conversations right right so let's say you're in a in a meeting and you want to a transcription of what everybody says in the meeting that's that's what this does yeah i mean the main thing you want is search right like exactly did we talk about this or not um, Robert Ramsey, my friend who has this uh, restaurant downtown, he wanted this because what he does is he's doing these video recordings and, you know, making tons and tons of video of people doing cooking demonstrations and stuff. And then he wants this as an, a way to go find edit points. Right. You know, if you have a transcript of a video, you, you know, to search on the word edit point, that would be awesome. Exactly. Or just, you know, you know, the, when the person screwed up, they said, you know, a bad word or whatever, you right. can search for that, find out exactly where it is. So you're not scrubbing through hours of video sure. trying to find. Uh, My you know. only problem with every one of these things is the same problem we've had with transcripts for 18 yeah. years, which is yep. the proper nouns get misconverted and they're, they are what people search on. They're like the most important thing. And even yeah. when we were doing manual transcriptions, people don't necessarily understand those proper nouns either. Yep, that's right. And, um, well, there's more to that story there. We could talk for a lot. But for sure. I, I know that with Microsoft's latest uh, cognitive services stuff mm-hmm. with speech recognition, you can actually set up, uh, you know. Um, a glossary. Yeah, a glossary. That's right. And so you have these proper nouns that you inject into it and then, you know, in, in the, within the realm of the conversation, if it comes up, they get transcribed correctly. So have you taken this one out for a spin? Are you impressed by it? I haven't yet, but um, the AppVNX guys have seen it and they're quite impressed. So as it turns out, I think one of the people that started this was uh, an ex-Microsofty. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure. Or maybe a... Uh, current Microsofty. I'm I'm not sure exactly, but I know that um, Microsoft is certainly a customer. But I think uh, one of their people had something to do with it. Cool. Yeah, so right. that's it. Another one. That's what I got? Out. Awesome, dude. Who's talking to us, Mister Campbell? Ah, uh, we hadn't talked functional in a while. Actually, you know, kind of embarrassing right. when you sort of dig in. Uh, this is a comment from episode 1590, which is October of 2018. Yeah. So, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And that's when we yeah, talked yeah. about Haskell and F-sharp side-by-side side with Daniel Chambers. And that mm-hmm. was when we were back when we were in NDC, Sydney. Yeah. Which is, you know, hard to imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, funny. Just a few months, and you're like, wow, everything's different. Uh, and so, a couple of years back, uh, this is Per Eric Stendhal, who has been a longtime listener. Hey, Per, how you doing? 
And uh, I think he's already got a music to code by, but, you know, there's always new tracks and things. He said, uh, did I just listen to an entire episode of an F Sharp and Haskell and didn't hear the word monad a single time? <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> <laughs> I've played around a little with F Sharp and has some cool features I miss in C Sharp, like pipes and discriminated unions. It also has some uncool features, like requiring everything to be declared before use in alphabetical order in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I thought this would be a great comment uh, to discuss with Philip as well, because we're talking about the latest version of F Sharp, just as the right. differences between 2018 and today. And the support is a bit wonky for some of the object-oriented features in .NET. Type inference is cool, but it turns IntelliSense into, well, I don't know what is this nonsense. <laughs> and I can't remember the APIs I worked with last week. It's just because you're getting old, Per. That's all that is. <laughs> Although, oddly enough, I can still recite some APIs I used in my 20s. Thanks, brain. <laughs> I like functional programming, but it's not for everyone. A creative functional programmer can easily write up some very terse code with many tiny layers of abstractions, making you wish longingly for those C programs with their simple pointers to arrays of pointers. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, that's the, the, he's hit on the key point here that when you really think functionally, you write code that for somebody who's struggling to think functionally, it's incredibly hard to understand. Yep. I once wrote a small piece of JavaScript in Angular that was five lines of code where each line returned a function or a promise that returned a function. It was short, to the point, and absolutely marvelous. But I realized that it was also 100% debug proof. No one would understand how it worked, including me, one week later. Beautiful, but mysterious. I call it my Mona Lisa. Ooh, nice. Thanks for a good show. What a great comment, Per. You're awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not only making a salient point, but having some fun with it, too. Right? Right. We write this code that we're proud of, and then a week later look at it and go, what, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> what, what does this do? Who doesn't write comments about code they're proud of? Wait, yeah. everybody. Okay. <laughs> uh Thanks, Per. And uh, I really wanted to read your comment to tie into this conversation we're going to have now about catching up, essentially, on F-sharp, because we're a little behind the times, and a copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via Facebook, because I publish every show there as well. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And please follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. No monads, please. <laughs> Not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's bring on Philip. Uh, Philip Carter is a senior program manager on the .NET team. He works on all things F-sharp, language design, compiler, library tools, and docs. He also works on the C-sharp compiler and .NET project integration tooling for Visual Studio. In his spare time, he's riding a bike or on a mountain hiking or riding a snowboard. Hi, Philip. Hey, how's it going? Good, good, good. You've been on the show before, right? No, I've actually never been on the show before, but I have listened a few times, uh, especially on uh, some of my earlier days at Microsoft when I was driving back down to uh, my college town in Oregon to hang out with my now wife. Uh, Very good. So all about F-sharp these days, huh? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, we're still in the thick of, you know, our release cycle right now, although it's kind of nearing the end because, you know, we're shipping F-sharp 5. It's going to be aligning with .NET 5. Um, You know, all the 5s are lining up. And, you know, there's a bit of a rush 
kind of a little stressful just to make sure that, you know, the right things are in at the right time, everything is good. And, you know, but it's, it's all part of, part of, you know, closing down a release cycle. It's kind of always like this. So it's, it's exciting. Um, so, you know, it's a really good time. Yeah. Version five. It's a good version. It's certainly a lot better than <laughs> version 4.0 to then 4.1 to then 4.5 to then 4.6 and 4.7. Hmm. Uh, we, we, we've had a few yeah. uh, hiccups in our version numbers, but um, that, that was that was largely due to some legacy stuff that we had to uh, clear up. But now... Um, uh, yeah, you know, I think everybody expects versions to be screwed up in terms of, you know, timing or whatever. It Look, as long as this number is bigger than the last number, that's yeah, really all you yeah, need to no. know, right? <laughs> <laughs> if this is the biggest number, it's current. Yeah, that's definitely the best. Uh, you definitely don't want your numbers going down for some reason. No, you definitely don't. <laughs> <laughs> and now our latest version 1.2. You version you minus on, five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I also understand that version numbers have become political, right? I think anything to do with .NET with a four associated with it meant the, you know, standard framework. And anything five-ish essentially, you know, is almost a declaration of we're in core. Is that true for yeah. F-sharp? <laughs> um, <laughs> Did I go right there right away just like that? That F-sharp. is actually not true for F-sharp. <laughs> But not in a way that you would expect. <laughs> so oh. back in the day, F Sharp ran on early .NET versions. Uh, but then, if you recall, there yeah. was a breaking change between CLRs. Uh, you know, CLR version four kind of was was a big deal compared with pre- the previous CLRs. And so F Sharp had to be compatible right. mm-hmm. on the previous CLR and CLR version four. So the versioning scheme for the F-sharp core library, which kind of contains a lot of primitives that the language has to use to be able to even like build the most basic of uh, F-sharp code, um, was prefixed with a version number, either four or three. And so F-sharp core that mapped to F-sharp 4.1 would be version 4.4.1.0, which is a little bit confusing. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, just a little, a little bit. And, uh, yeah, so one of the journeys Jeez. that we were on, um, this actually happened around 2018, was trying to clean that up because, you know, this distinction between the very older version CLR and the newer CLR is kind of irrelevant when you're in a world with .NET Core and now eventually .NET 5. So, um, you know, we moved to, you know, from 4.4.1.0 to 4.5.0. Um, and the reason why we had to do that where there was some interim versions and packages and stuff like that that had bumped version numbers, even though they were referring to a different number, like it was total chaos. And so um, we, we just had to bump up a few yeah. minor versions to get back on track again. Awesome. But still not running on core or you are running on core. Uh, we are running on core. We've been running on Donna Core uh, since Donna Core 1.0, which... It was a very, well, it was a very chaotic right. time. Like uh, anybody who was trying to use Donna Core 1.0 and then on F Sharp on top of that was signing up for a lot of work 
because the like all the APIs were wrong. Were I shouldn't say wrong; they were all different. Uh, the F Sharp language had various things that were still right. missing at the time. You couldn't use F Sharp Interactive. The Visual Studio tooling didn't work, and and so on. So it was it was kind of a bad time. But you know, uh, right around F Sharp four point five, I think, is when things cleared up a lot, especially uh, when we added some of the low level primitives with span of T and things like that that were sort of propagating throughout .NET Core. Um, that, uh, that also coincided with the mm-hmm. Visual Studio tooling mm-hmm. sort of coming into place and being in a good spot. Uh, so now uh, F-sharp.core and the F-sharp language is sort of orienting around .NET standard. And one of the main things that we're doing uh, later this year is we're going to push the F-sharp core library to be only a .NET standard 2.0 compatible binary. And so we're still kind of behind the times. Like we would love it to just be, you know, only work on Don, on Donet five, but because Donet five has exactly zero uh, f- releases and zero official customers right now, uh, we're 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 going to be compatible with modern Donet framework, Donet core, and Donet five, and then sort of put ourselves on the path to um, aligning concretely with how the uh, .NET runtime uh, versions moving forward. Yeah, I think we're up to preview five of .NET five now, as of this recording. I believe they they come pretty quickly, but the I think the current time horizon is sometime in the fall for for .NET five. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the way that it has been working is since January, there's been a monthly update, and uh, kind of the model that we've taken is you know we right. we, we try to get some things into a release if it's if it's like a really good idea. Um, but it's sort of this model of whatever's in there is in there and things come in whenever they're ready and stable and we think they're good enough for people to use. And if that's at the beginning of a month, then they will show up in the next uh, monthly update. And then um, that's that's continuing until I believe September. Yeah, I think the September update is going to kind of be the last preview and, and that might even be an RC. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I found Rich Lander's last blog post on this, which is from July. So it's a few weeks out of date of this recording saying, okay, we're at preview seven. This is the second to last preview release. Then we'll go to release Canada. So it's supposed to be a preview eight, then an RC, maybe a second RC. And then, yeah, we, we it might make actually make September, October. Hmm. I mean, it's just a huge bite. Like this is, I, I'm always in awe of them saying in January, yeah, we're going to have this out in the fall. I'm like, really? Like, I, I look at the list of things you intend and like, I don't even know how you estimate that. Well, really. it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing. I mean, there's, there's sort of a, a smaller version of that happened with F sharp as well, because, you know, in January, there were a set of mm-hmm. things that were sort of in progress language features that we said, Oh yeah, we're totally going to get this in by the end of the year. And we had to cut a few of them because it was just turning out that the design was too challenging and the implementation was also challenging. And right. we said, Hey, you know what? Um, we tried. But it didn't make it. But it didn't make it, and that was for the right reasons, though. You know, it was it wasn't because of maliciousness or anything right. like that. It's it's because you know if something isn't ready, it's not ready, and we shouldn't push it out. Well, there's also a part of is it unpeelable? Like, can does, if this piece is removed, does it wreck the the update? Is it a bunch of other things that depended on it? Like, how do you disassemble it? I presume they will be added in later in a later version, but. It's, I think it's a great game you play saying, okay, we're not going to make our deadlines. What needs to, what can be cut? What still makes a viable version? Hmm. So let's talk about what's in the latest version. 
How do we know what version we're on? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll give like a pretty brief recap because there, there's a particular framing that I'm trying out for this. Like I tried it out for a conference talk and I'm going to try it out for some new ones, uh, like a little magazine article, things like that. So for the past about four years now, F Sharp has been all about .NET Core. I mean, yeah, there's been some language features that have gone in that are not tied to .NET Core. There's been obviously a, t- a bunch of Visual Studio tooling improvements that have nothing to do with .NET Core. But in terms of where the team's focus has been continually uh, for the past four years, it has about been enabling F Sharp on .NET Core to be as good as it possibly can be. And F Sharp 5, we're sort right. of marking as kind of the end of that era. And, you know, there's still some things that we can do that mm. can make it even better on Donna Core, but it's sort of the, all the major fundamental pieces are there working well and have been enhanced to sort of fit the times. And so F sharp five kind of marks the first version of the language where we're in it, uh, the first version, I should say, since the past four years, where we are intentionally including features that fit with a theme that is not related to Donna Core. Uh, and that theme is, I guess we're calling it better interactivity and better analytical programming. So F Sharp has had a pretty good history with interactive programming. Uh, in fact, I, I kind of, I crawled through some archives in Don Syme's blog, uh, back in like the early 2000s when he was first prototyping the F Sharp interactive process and hooking it up to like Visual Studio 2005 on Windows XP. Yeah. And, uh, one of the key demos that he was trying to show at the time was, hey, you could write F-sharp code. You could just hit Alt-Enter on your keyboard, send it off to a process, and it'll launch a window that will show a graphic on Windows. And at the time, I think it was demoing some of the early DirectX stuff uh, or or something like that. It was around the time that DirectX was starting to get pushed at Microsoft, I think. Um, And and that was was like a really compelling demo to show off these cool visualizations that you could do with kind of numerical processing, some charting, things like that. And... um, that there, that's kind of always been a strength of F sharp and attracted a certain number of programmers in these sort of domains where they, they do, I guess what we call analytical work. And they've always used F sharp interactive and the F sharp community has also sort of hopped onto F sharp interactive since the very, very early days and said, Hey, if you want to get started with this language, just send code to a process and it'll just execute it. You don't need to create a project. You don't need a solution file. You don't need to understand what MS build is. You just need some F sharp code and you can just execute right. it in a thing called F sharp interactive. And that's it. And. That's a, it's a really, really wonderful way to learn how to use, use F sharp, learn how to do programming and learn and just do analytical tasks. But since about 2012 or so, the interactiveness of F sharp had not really been invested in. It was kind of built up kind of this nice core base and then left to where it was. And it was good and it still is good for what it is. But since then, things like mm-hmm. packages have entered the fray. You know, people, want to download right, something from NuGet. Right. And it's like, okay, Jupiter. well, if I'm using F Sharp Interactive, how do I use a NuGet package? Well, that's kind of a problem. Uh, the answer at that point right. was you would have had to have downloaded it manually on your machine, uh, made sure that it's in the right place. And then there's this little pound directive that you could do called pound R, and you would have to give it a literal path to the DLL or the set of DLLs on your machine that corresponded to that NuGet package. If it was a NuGet package that had multiple DLLs, Mm -hmm. uh, you had to make sure you got all those right. If there was a package that required the DLLs get imported in a particular order, you had to make sure you got that right. If it had native dependencies, you had to figure out how to deal with those. 
Um, in other words, not very useful. Yeah, it was, well, it was really hard. And, and, you know, there were some advanced F sharp programmers who can absolutely do that sort of stuff. But, you know, your average person learning the language wanting to use newtonsoft.json to just serialize some JSON and see what that's like. Uh, they were, they were in for a bit of a uh, right, wild yeah. ride. And that's been a, uh, something that people have been wanting a solution to for quite a long time now. I, I got to think the simp- the answer was just to s- stop trying to do interactive and just write code and compile and run it like sort of quote unquote old fashioned. I can't believe I said that, <laughs> but <laughs> rather than trying to solve the interactive thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's one of those things where if .NET Core didn't exist, we probably would have uh, focused on this a little bit earlier, but because .NET Core came in and sure. interactivity was, was never one of the major goals of .NET Core, at least in the beginning. Uh, we sort of had to go down this path of yeah. focusing on, mm-hmm. hey, if you want to do anything like air quotes real with your F sharp code, use a project, use .NET build, uh, look at the MS build, you know, uh, banner that pops up every time you type build Microsoft R build engine TM version number craziness, uh, and just deal with it beginner. Uh, that, that, that was sort of the, the, the story. And so with, with F sharp five, we're sort of saying, okay, you know, that is in a good place now. So we should sort of go back to this thing that people have loved for a long time that we haven't been able to give the love that it deserved and give it a little bit of love. Do some yeah. of the stuff that people want it to do. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I also think that in general, interactive development, like the Jupyter Notebook world and so forth, it's just taken a big hop up that there's lots of little bits of code we write that we often end up putting into projects that are just cluttering things up. You never go back to them that in the notebook approach are way more reusable, understandable value. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and, and in fact, that that's also sort of one of the, the other aspects of uh, better interactive programming is, you know, we're improving F-sharp interactive to be able to let you do package management and just specify a package. It'll resolve it. It'll, it'll get it there. But then you can also do that exact same thing inside of a Jupyter Notebook or inside of a Visual Studio Code notebook, which is kind of this preview thing that, that they're building out right now. But it's sort of like Jupyter Notebooks uh, on steroids with better uh, language service integration and stuff like that. And uh, the, the, the notebook mm-hmm. model is totally the next level of interactivity. Uh, there's so many interesting things that, that we've, we've been able to build out. So like, for example, um, if you needed to do some plotting, and one of the packages that we recommend for doing plotting with .NET uh, isn't isn't cutting it for you for some reason. But there's a JavaScript package that does exactly what you need inside of the notebook infrastructure. You can mm-hmm. you can have your values that you construct, like your your data set that you're going to plot over. So you've done your data manipulation and stuff in, in F sharp, or if you want to in C sharp. Uh, and then you can, it, it will implicitly serialize that value as a JSON object. And then you could have a cell just right below it and say, this cell is JavaScript and it's going to require this fancy plotting library that I don't have access to inside of .NET. And I'm just going to read that same data that I produced nice. in my .NET cell. And it, it's a very, it's a very powerful mm. thing that we're looking to also extend to Python because as many people know, for all sorts of numerical programming tasks, machine learning, all that kind of stuff. Python is the king right now because of its libraries. And to be able to access it with .NET, it's, right. it's not yeah. it's not the best. There's there's a few uh, there's a few ways that kind of mush together the .NET runtime and the Python runtime to varying degrees of success. And what we're trying to go with now is saying, hey, you do your data manipulation as much as you want to inside of 
uh, inside of .NET, but then you serialize that data and then you can have a Python cell to call into a library if uh, the .NET ecosystem doesn't have the thing that you're looking for right now. And you're, you're just working with that data. So you just drop into Python for when you need it. You could send the result back and then import it back into .NET and continue on. Yeah, Python also was very interactive, super approachable, great with Jupyter Notebooks. Like, it, it, I hate to say it this way because I suspect we've all been developers long enough that we started out with command line. That's how you learned the program. And it was not easy to learn to program without that, you know, hello world effect, without the, with this sort of minimal ceremony. And it does seem to be back. I think one of the reasons Python's so well loved, especially in the novice development community, is that it is super approachable. Yeah. Number one reason for using, uh, you know, argument for using F sharp is the interactivity thing, the, the REPL. Mm-hmm. That's uh, one of the best reasons for it. Yeah. And also a great scripting language. Yeah, absolutely. Scripting and interactivity and learning, they all just, they all just sort of go hand in hand. Like it's sort of this, it's, it's just, it's, it's kind of hard to put a finger on what makes it special. Uh, because there's, there's many, there's many aspects mm-hmm. of it, but it's sort of just like this, this way of doing things with your language. That's just, that's different from typical enterprise .NET inside of Visual Studio programming. And, and not that that kind of style that most .NET developers and also I think a lot of F sharp developers, certainly when they're, uh, you know, using F sharp for work are doing that there's like nothing bad about doing that. It's just, that's one way of doing things that we've optimized for, for a very long time now. But there's this whole other way of doing stuff with languages and, and the way that you view languages that, um, it, interestingly enough, F-sharp has taken a view that that's a good way to do stuff for a long time. And we, we took a step back from that. And now we're, we're trying to get back into that because it, it sort of feels like it's the, it's the right natural thing to do. And, and it's also the right time to do it, especially with the rise of other languages focusing on interactivity and seeing a lot of growth, uh, from beginners. I wonder if non-programmer DBAs, you know, who do T-SQL a lot, will find F-sharp to make more sense than a, uh, an object-oriented language. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I mean, there's certainly a lot of, uh, you know, like SQL stuff, you know, it's expressions, you know, you're not, you're, when you're writing SQL, you're not, you know, doing, okay, do this step, now do this step, now set this variable, now set that variable, now set this value in this array, blah, blah, blah. Like it's all, it's a very sort of abstract set of expressions that you're composing together. And that that's totally very um, in line with the functional model. And then also the, the way that the data is stored, the way you think about it, it's very structured right. in nature and structured functional programming is also a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call SQL a functional language. But you can see it from there. Like the way that you think in sets is very functional. Yeah. It's not a, I mean, T SQL is not a Turing complete language. Like it has its own issues, but it right. is, it, it is set based. Yeah, it's set based it's, it's, rather than iterative. True enough. It does feel like all of the languages are going in their own directions in the .NET world. That C Sharp's clearly gone a path, VB.NET a different path, and it does feel like F Sharp another path as well. Like you've, your languages are getting more distinct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think it, it really shows that, you know, we, I mean, it's interesting because there, there's, there's the, the product that we produce and then there's the thing that we work on internally at Microsoft. And internally at Microsoft, actually, we spend a lot more time focusing on interop and making sure that we do the same things 
because the stuff that we do that's distinct from one another is actually kind of easy comparatively. Uh, and, and it's kind of, it's kind of funny right. because that, you know, that, that, the, the features that make F sharp distinct from C sharp are the ones that make F sharp programmers love the language. Um, but they're also typically a little bit easier to handle because there's less moving parts. It's sort of, you know, we're in our own world. We can sort of implement it the way that we want, the way that it makes sense for us. And, um, one thing that I think has changed over the past year or so after, uh, .NET Core has come up is we, we've just been able to move faster. And I, I don't, I don't really know why. Uh, I'd like to, I, because, you know, it's not like, you know, we're smarter <laughs> or the people, you know, it's, it's a lot of the same people. So it's not like, you know, they're 10 times better or something, but we, we seem like we're able to get a lot more things done, especially things that, uh, make us distinct from our, um, our peers in .NET. Like, you know, C sharp is doing all sorts of interesting stuff right now. And same thing with F sharp. And there's a little bit of interplay as well, but we've been able to get, a lot of things done and try to carve out a distinct path for, for ourselves. Um, and, and especially on the, the F sharp side of things, uh, this interactive and analytical kind of approach makes sense, uh, for us, we think, because, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, we're a turn complete language. So C sharp, therefore you could do literally anything you want in either of those languages, you know, if you're willing to put in the work. Sure. Uh, but it's a question of what we choose to emphasize. And um, that, that sort of nuance is something that you can dial up a little bit. And that's what we're, we're, we're definitely trying to do right now. Yeah. There's a reason there's multiple languages in the world, right? It definitely, there's the different mindsets. And I, I appreciate that you're pressing against that interactive mode and, you know, the implication of the relationship with data because functional does lend itself to sets and to manipulating uh, streams of, uh, of data efficiently with relatively terse code that does read well when you're thinking in terms of a stream. Or, oh, yeah, or absolutely. Um, you know, one of the typical things that I tell people, like if I'm at a conference and they ask me, hey, what's F sharp? What's that? You know, what do I do with F sharp? How do I do it? That stuff. I just I just say some simple stuff. Hey, mm -hmm. you you yeah. use succinct data types to define your data. And then you write functions that operate on that data. And that's it. You separate the two. Sometimes you smush them together right. if it makes sense, you know, for a particular abstraction or something like that. But you define your data, you operate on the shape of your data. And that's, that's sort of the heart of F sharp programming. And that seems to stick with people when they decide they're going to go try it out and they sort of hear, you know, okay, that, that's how I do F sharp programming. You know, they, they then, they then take records and discriminated unions and they model their data types. You know, maybe they throw an anonymous record in there for fun, a new feature we shipped a couple of years ago. Um, <laughs> and then they write a function. That function <laughs> takes in that data as input. It does pattern matching. Okay. If it's this shape, I'm going to do this. If it's this shape, I'm going to do this other thing. Uh, sometimes they'll create an object. Sometimes they won't. Uh, it's kind of up to them. But you know, that's really just sort of the, the the core of it. And there's a few advanced features that you can do if you want to get really fancy. But uh, you know, the, the core things that make F sharp great are actually very dead simple. And um, I think even though you can do that kind of stuff in C sharp today, it's sort of about the language defaults and the things that it chooses to emphasize. And this is the sort of style of programming right. that F sharp is totally built for. Like everything is sort of pointed in the direction of doing stuff that way. And that's, we want to continually emphasize that and try to figure out a way to make that work better in, you know, expanding interactive contexts. Like, like, you know, how do, how can we make working with data with these data types even simpler when you're inside of a Jupyter Notebooks environment where you're possibly sharing this data across different languages? It's, it's, it's a real challenge, but I think it's something that we're, 
we're going to work a lot harder towards in the, in the next couple of years to really land some more great. It does make sense to me that you put more energy into making sure you work and play well with others. Uh, because that is sort of the strength of being in the .NET land, right? It's like, well, what language did you want to program in? But if you start pressing, a, if you're pushing up against the data world, then it is interaction with Python, interaction with some of these ML constructs, like much more elaborate data ideas than than just SQL. Yeah, and I, I think that that's actually, it's a really good point and kind of core to one of the philosophies that we're trying to move towards here. You know, I, I think... Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of relatively new to Microsoft. Like, you know, I joined in 2015, fresh out of college, right around when Donna Core was first starting. And, you know, this whole world of being open source and trying to work well with others was kind of the only thing that I've ever known here. Right. Yeah. You're one of yeah, those. Types. I was, <laughs> you, came, you came in at the, in the beginning of the revolution. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was raised to be a hippie, so to speak. No. <laughs> 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 No, but so it, it's actually well interesting because, you know, I'll, um, I'll, I'll read some stuff from longtime open source people in the .NET space and some of their criticisms of Microsoft and some of the things that we've been trying to do in the past. And it's actually interesting because, you know, um, I find myself agreeing with them on one hand, but on the other hand being like, they must be referring mostly to a different time because I don't that I wasn't around when any of that happened and that's not kind of how we do stuff, but uh, it's kind of, I guess it's sort of taken a while right. to sort of bring, you know, sort of change, you know, have the, the way that we're doing things, you know, sort of be changed and then, and then have people understand that and sort of move forward with that. And um, sure. And, and not everybody in Microsoft has changed the same, right. And not everybody outside of Microsoft has seen change at the same rate. So you'd always get a spectrum. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so thinking about how that how that uh, how that relates to languages and specifically F sharp F sharp five and what we're trying to do moving forward is, you know, we're we're sort of trying to take the the framing approach where F sharp is the functional language for .NET, and .NET is a cross platform stack that does all sorts of stuff and works in all kinds of different environments. And we really, truly mean that. And that also can directly translate to, yes, we know how to talk to Python in a place like Jupyter Notebooks where people are oftentimes using Python, right? You know, we're, we're not trying to go and create our own little world and then tell people, okay, yeah, you know, we're great. Please come over here. Ignore everything else in the world right now because we're the only ones who know how to do it, right? Like, we're, we're not trying to do that here. We're, we're really trying to say, hey, we want to bring the awesome stuff that we've made out into the rest of the world and allow them to sort of interact well with us so that so that people who have some some familiarity with other ecosystems don't feel like they have to sort of unlearn everything and go and relearn the Microsoft version of something or, or something like that. Right. And th that sort of underpins uh, everything that we're doing and what we're focusing on. Yeah. It, well, it, it's funny. I had this conversation with Matt's targets and I don't know that we did a show about it, but we were talking about what was going to happen with .NET Core and, and sort of the way the, and Rosalind, like the change in the approach to compilation, the change in the sort of environment you're going to work in as a lot of plumbing work fundamentally, like we're shifting the underpinnings. And I said, I think you've set yourself up for a Cambrian explosion. Like you're now sort of releasing yourself to go wild once all this underpinning works. And it feels like you're there with F sharp just now. Like you finally got all of the foundation in place to now go run. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and that we've seen bits and pieces of that already, actually. 
back in, I believe it was mm-hmm. ASP.NET Core 2.0 when that came out, uh, they sort of redid the middleware layer of it all and tried to, and, and I mean, from the beginning, they wanted to make it extensible, but they, they really sort of took it to heart and they made it extensible in some good ways. And, you know, they've had to make some breaking changes here and there, and that's kind of made a few extenders a little mad, but like overall, the fundamentals were in a good spot. And within, I'd say about two months, uh, the giraffe library showed up and it said, Hey, we're going to plug into this part of the stack. But we're going to do it way different from the way that Microsoft has you do stuff. And that, that way different way of doing things is, is great because number one, it took advantage of features of F sharp to make it really feel like an, an excellent, uh, F sharp way to do stuff. And in fact, it was based off of a previous open source project called Suave, uh, with, you know, the, the way that you use functions and composing them together to model your API routes, but it plugged it into ASP.NET Core. And that wasn't like an easy task, but it was also a very possible task. And that was something that sort of grew into its own thing that uh, Giraffe then sort of inspired some other folks to go and build a project called Saturn, which is a completely an, another completely different way to do stuff uh, with your, your web server. Um, and there's now another library called Falco, which is, again, showing another way to do things. And there's now sort of like, you know, three different approaches. Um, and I'm sure there's even more, but, you know, three major approaches that I'm aware of that you could do web programming on F-Sharp today if you want to build a web server. And uh, all of that is just because there was a good foundation at place for people to sort of really go wild on. And I think that sort of hints at, you know, what the Cambrian explosion could look like. Interesting. Yeah. And it it well, and mm. it's this is one of the aspects of it is you enable folks to take different approaches to doing, I don't want to say traditional things, but it's like, look, how many web frameworks have we got? But, <laughs> but when you open the door to a sort of functional set of expressions, right? You know, I'm looking at the Saturn framework page and going, what if we combined MVC and functional programming? And, and, and then I sort of just zone out like, wow, that's a lot to think of. It's fabulous that their response was, let's write some code, make it easy to do that. Like that's really fascinating ways. And it, it is, it's a huge enabler. This is what ecosystems look like. You build tools and foundational materials so that others can go off and explore. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that, that's also, you know, we're building up some of the infrastructural pieces for that as well in the notebook stuff. So, uh, the, the notebook support in F sharp is tied with this component called .NET interactive and .NET interactive has an extensibility model, um, to be able to say, Hey, if you're in a Jupyter notebook and you have data in any format or you have your own plotting library or something like that, uh, you can control how that gets displayed via the, the F sharp and C sharp kernels in .NET interactive. And, you know, we've actually already seen a few library authors who, uh, um, just have like, you know, little data manipulation libraries and stuff like that. And they have their own data structures that, that you sort of have to operate on. And rather than just saying, okay, well, it renders however it renders, we say, here you go, use this API to package up, uh, you know, an additional uh, extension DLL, as that's what it's called, inside of your NuGet package. And then when you include this NuGet package inside of the notebook, you're the one who's actually in control of how this data gets um, gets formatted by us. And it, we're really excited about that because, uh, that's, you know, similar to sort of, you know, the ASP.NET world sort of saying, here's, here's a core piece, go and have fun with that and make it really work for the components that you want to build. We want to now also do that in the interactive space. Right. Yeah. The idea of interactive components is really interesting to me because that just seems like 
it needs that assembly formality, that sort of composition formality. The idea of dynamic composition, that's fascinating. It's never something I would think of in, in the interactive model. Yeah. How, I mean, it, it does almost kind of seem like by that time, why are you using this interactive thing? Why aren't you, you know, what, what is the, what is the reason for, for using an interactive mode when you're doing something that complex? Um, uh, that's, that's, that's a pretty good question. I mean, I think there's a couple different reasons. Like, you know, I, I'm, I can't really claim to be an interactive expert. I've been, you know, playing around with the notebooks quite a lot, especially in terms of testing things out. Um, but I think one of the big aspects for me is so sort of in my role, um, at Microsoft, I do a lot of writing because my title is program manager and I send emails and instant messages, try to coordinate various things and go off, learn something, write up a report about what I learned, try to disseminate that information. Uh, and a lot of times that involves data analysis of some kind. And right now, the tools that I have at my job for doing that are not very good. Uh, I have, I have some disparate tools for analyzing data and then I have some other tools for recording that, you know, what, what I've learned and sharing it. And it's, it's, it, it's kind of not that, not that great. Um, Jupyter Notebooks is actually the perfect tool for the kind of things that I want to do, where I want to go interactively explore with stuff that yeah, is complicated. And ultimately, I'm going to simplify it. And I want it to be sort of this living document that I'm generating. And when it's sort of ready, it's presented in like this beautiful format. And I can sort of say like, you know, here's what I had to do. I had to go to talk to these people. I had to look at these data sets. I had to go, um, you know, do these joins across these different databases and produce this stuff. And, and, and uh, you know, not only show people uh, what the results of my learnings were, but the process as well, so that other people could go ahead and do that. Right now, that's something that's really hard. Well, inc and including yourself next week, right? Like, that's the thing that kills me is like, I, I know I made this work yeah. last week. <laughs> now I'm looking at what I did and it's like, how, how did I do this? Yeah, exactly. And one thing that, that I, I really love about the notebooks model and being able to incorporate very complicated things into it is... Um, you know, we have some new people on our team who, you know, they, they struggle with learning how to do things because they're new, right? Like, you know, it's hard to do something you don't know how to do yet. And resources for doing that are very hard to come by. And, you know, there's, there's oftentimes like very general, Hey, here's how you go off and do this task, but there's no good set of like, you know, you're in the thick of doing some very complex work. And here's what the data looks like at this step. Here's an explanation for what that means. Here's what it looks like in this step. Here's the massive amount of code and these components that we had to pull in to manipulate that data into a way that made sense. Here's the chart that we generated. Here's our description of that chart that explains what this data now, what, what this actually means and, and, you know, why we're coming to these conclusions and things like that. That's the sort of stuff that I found mm -hmm. within Microsoft and probably within organizations across the entire world is very, very hard to teach people. And I think a lot of that is because we don't have good enough tools for doing that. In comes Jupyter Notebooks. All of a sudden, right. there is a pretty good tool for doing that. And you can incorporate all sorts of really fantastic tools to uh, play around in that environment and produce such an amazing, you know, kind of output for people to learn from. Yeah. Managing secrets in Jupyter Notebooks. Because, you you know, you just rattled off. You poked all these different places to pull data in from. Every one of them needed credentials in some form. You know, and it's, you know, do you leave yourself clever notes about what credentials you use or do you have a tool that embeds those credentials? Like that's where the tooling makes a huge difference for you. Yeah. Well, the, the credentials on that, that's always, that's always fun. I don't think we're ever going to solve the problem of leaking their keys 
Um, <laughs> but, but certainly, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, we don't try and solve the problem. We just try and detect it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there, there's, there's definitely tooling that can be built to sort of recognize those, those anti-patterns you could call them. Uh, but then, you know, also kind of to the point, let's, let's say you needed to, uh, pull down some package from an internal, uh, you know, an, an internal NuGet feed that has some proprietary stuff, um, in it. Uh, you can actually configure the notebook itself and the core interactive mechanism inside of F Sharp to be able to say, hey, um, get this package from this feed with this authentication. Mm -hmm. Are there other language things we should be talking about from the F Sharp point of view? Like, I totally get that you guys were always good with nullable types. Now, .NET's good with nullable types. So, life's probably gotten easier for you there. Yeah, this, that's actually a very interesting point. So, um, back last year, we actually came up with the core design for nullable reference types in F-sharp because um, it is sort of this fundamentally different way of looking at reference types in .NET, even though it's it's all just, you know, kind of magic, uh, you know, attributes getting emitted inside of IL that are implicitly ignored unless you support nullable. And, and you know, it's fully backwards compatible. But, um, you know, we came up with the core design and... Uh, we decided to push it back a bit because, um, it ended up being a massive feature that would have sort of gone against the principle that we have of trying to go our own way a little bit and, and, you know, emphasize some parts of F sharp that are great from the F sharp perspective. But that point where you just, where you just said like, you know, oh, does that make life a little bit easier? Absolutely. It does. Uh, and it does it largely because yeah. there, there's less C sharp code out there that is accidentally emitting null values. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a few. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, 99% of the time, all nulls yeah. are accidents. Yeah. Uh, but, but so, yeah, that's something that we're looking to add eventually because there are a few places in F sharp where you can do the same thing. Like, you know, you're working on a string, you know, a string could be null. And, you know, sometimes F-sharp developers, myself included, can be lulled into a bit of a false sense of security by saying, ah, yes, I don't have nulls. Therefore, I can dot into this thing and it will be no problem. Everything will be fine. It's all fine. You know, the never assume is it's really the thing that comes to mind when I'm writing C-sharp code. I'm always, you know, if this is not null and if that is not null, if this is not null, because you just, you can't assume Things happened, at, you know. I mean, you know, the CLR could actually have a problem with it. I, I believe at, at one point there was there was this legendary bug internally at Microsoft that uh, one of the compiler developers uh, got down to, where there was some corruption on somebody's machine, where the CLR that was installed accidentally had a bit flipped. Oh, like it was a mistake. Yeah, it was some it was some error in installation. Like, you know, the you know, all the other CLR installations they looked at didn't have that, but then they finally got access to this customer's machine and there was one thing that was different and that ended up being the result of their bug. So, you know, that wow. could wow. potentially happen. Maybe get a null that you didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is where you get back to, you know, where nulls a mistake. Should we default it to no nulls? And they only use them when we really need them because they're so rare to be intentionally used. Yeah, that's actually, it's a very interesting philosophical point, it being a mistake or not. Um, because the, the feature in C-sharp, it's interesting because you can actually use null a bit more meaningfully with the feature. Uh, because you, you now get the compiler analysis to let you know if you're going to be misusing that value that could be null. And that's actually quite helpful because... 
um, before you didn't get that. And so you would throw nulls around all the time just because it was a convenient thing. And, you know, hopefully the caller calls, you know, it handles this sort of stuff. Um, and so it sort of operates on two, on two levels where it says null is a valuable thing that we're going to track as a first class thing for you so that you're going to make sure you get this thing right. right. But on the other hand, we want you to use it a little bit less. <laughs> well, I'd like the whole idea of use it intentionally. Don't use it. Uh, don't have a null occur because bug. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's that's actually the, the F-sharp philosophy that we have around nulls. You know, there's certain things that that, that mm-hmm. we do to protect against nulls that C-sharp doesn't. Uh, for example, you can't just assign something to be null anytime you want. It, it has to actually be declared uh, as something that can accept a null value. And so, you know, there's already sort of that intentionality sort of uh, associated with it. Um, and there's various ways that F-sharp code gets initialized at runtime that prevents null values from propagating in. And there's certain ways that you you just you can't write F-sharp code. And like, for example, if there's a generic constraint and you try to parameterize it with something that could be null, unless it's parameterized to be something that uh, allows nulls, then it won't let you do that. Um, now, of course, there's also unconstrained generics. And so that, that you know, you could certainly do that. But there, there's sort of a few tools in the toolkit. And so, you know, on one hand, we're saying, please don't use nulls as much. But on the other hand, we're saying, well, if you're going to use nulls, we want to give you a bit more tools. You know, they're kind of restrictions in a way, but they actually are really tools for being intentional about your use of it so that you can be safe when you're going ahead to, you know, do this thing that you got to do. Right. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> these are interesting times, right? The billion dollar mistake. And we already had undefined. Like, did we really need it? But uh, it is what it is. We're working our way through it. And one would argue we're finally on a path that that mitigates this pain, uh, at least in .NET land anyway. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's funny that, that it's called the billion-dollar mistake. I actually think it should be called the trillion-dollar mistake now because the software industry is a bit more valuable than when that term was first coined. Well, and, and, and yeah, you're right. It's been a few years. And, and I'm, I look at that number as the hours of debugging. Right, just the hours of debugging hunting nulls. Yeah. That, that, that oh represents. yeah, absolutely. Well, Philip, I think uh, I was going to ask you what's next for you, but we've already talked about that because you got all these things coming for dot for for F sharp five. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's what's most immediately next for us. You know, we got a few features that we're trying to land, mm-hmm. you know, string interpolation, name of we actually just got in opening type declarations. Um, you know, some more ex- expressive computation expressions, things like that. Um, but then uh, there's a few things that we're trying to do post F-sharp 5. Uh, one thing that we're going to be focusing on is uh, internally the, well, I shouldn't call it internal because it's all open source, but the F-sharp code base itself has been around for a long time. And there's a couple of different uh, bespoke test frameworks, I'll call them. Uh, and they're, you know, right. not the greatest in the world. You know, they're tests, so they run and they're useful, but the way that they run is not very great. It's kind of hard for contributors to improve them. And so we're going to do a big quality push to sort of get our repository into as good a state as possible for contributors to go and have a lot of fun with. And then after that, one of the major things we're going to be looking at is working with the community um, to try to consolidate some of the F-sharp tooling experiences that exist today. Because right now, the three major ways, or rather, I should say the four major ways that you do F-sharp programming is through Visual Studio, Visual Studio Code, Visual Studio for Mac, and JetBrains Writer. 
Now, all of these depend on the same compiler right. and the same compiler APIs, but the way that they use those APIs and the way that data sort of shows up in tooltips and things like that is different from IDE to IDE. Now, of course, we don't own JetBrains Writer, so we can't just you know change that. But one thing that we're going to be looking to do is working with the community um, specifically to make F-Sharp tooling center around language server protocol. And as it happens, the Visual Studio Code support via the INIDE plugin has a fully fleshed out LSP and a whole bunch of amazing features on top of it. And we're going to look to see if we can bring that thing into Visual Studio. And then we're going to say, hey, look, this is how we can converge these two ways of doing things and build something great and do it with the community for, you know, as collaborative as possible from the start. And then we can, you know, we could then also talk to the folks with Rider and say like, you know, hey, are you interested in sort of adopting this similar approach so that you have pretty much the same tooling experiences, no matter which IDE front end you want to have. Um, and then anybody right. could come in and improve stuff. And we, we're, we're looking to really try to focus on that post F-Sharp 5, in addition to all of the interactivity stuff that we're continually trying to make better. That's cool. Uh, well, thanks, Philip. It's been really fun chatting with you. I'm excited with where F-Sharp's going and, and this continuing evolution of .NET, you know, 20 years on, essentially, and still yep. great new ideas and, and embracing these new programming models. Great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. This is uh, this is pretty exciting. Um, you know, it's exciting not not just because it's my first time in the podcast or something like that, but you know, this is I haven't been able to talk about F Sharp very much uh, due to COVID and you know not being able to travel to conferences and sort of tell the story about what we're doing and how we're getting there and what we're going to do next and things like that. So it's it's been a real pleasure. All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.